It's, uh, it's good to be here today. I can see the faces over here smiling a little more because the sun is shining on them over here. Just a caution, just try to stay awake. <laughs> it's like the pets that just find that sunspot on that rug and go to sleep. on here. Today we are looking at, uh, for the next, the last uh, message for the next few weeks, uh, it's hard to believe, I, my wife says I say this every year, but it's hard to believe that next week is Advent, um, so we'll be doing uh, four days. Uh, Lessons and uh, looking at four weeks of from the book of Ruth, each week a chapter. And then we'll finish up um, Peter uh, for a couple weeks in January. And then I'm leaning strongly toward going through uh, a few months of the book of Judges. Um, it's entertaining. It's, uh, uh, it's always good to preach through the book of Judges. I've, been, I've done it a few times, but... Um, uh, there's a lot of very good lessons to learn from there. So pray for me as if we go in that direction, it seems like the Lord is directing me there uh, for maybe 15 weeks or so. Um, I like kind of balancing my messages between a New Testament and Old Testament books just so that we have a good balance so that we can see Christ uh, in the Old Testament as well as we're so focused on Christ in the New Testament, but to be able to see who Jesus really is, the fulfillment as, uh, of all the scriptures. That must have been a great time when Jesus walked with them and, and talking. He says, you know, he opened up the scriptures to them from the beginning uh, and to the end of the Old Testament, just saying it was all about me. So it's always a, a good exercise to have us all connect the dots together. Because we look at the Old Testament, sometimes we see these pieces of dates and these pieces of history and these prophecies and all this other stuff and we kind of you know we kind of see it disjointed sometimes but it's really important for us to be able to see Jesus throughout it not to say that we find Jesus under every rock it's just the fact that we find Jesus is is the redeemer he's the ultimate victor he's the ultimate savior and he's the one that has been proclaimed from Genesis to the book of Revelation so I hope you pray for me as we try to work on those together um, these next few weeks to see in the book of Ruth uh, the coming of Christ and how God in uh, small ways uh, prepared for Jesus' coming, and uh, which is always a good um, example and always a good lesson for us to realize that Jesus is very much a part of the small details as well as our life. Um, so First Peter... Chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let 
him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household, or better, really, the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, or if it is, it is difficult to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to be faith to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray this morning for your spirit to be upon us all. We pray, Lord, that we would feel his presence in a most intimate and a profound way. We call upon him, Lord, to come and because we need him to be with us, to worship you. When we walked in the doors, we needed him. When we leave today, we need him, Lord. But as we want to make sure that we set apart, set apart Christ in our hearts, that we realize that we are doing this activity because we do it towards you, Lord. We do it for you. And yet this is a day that you've given to us so that we may rest, rest physically, rest emotionally, but most of the rest spiritually, knowing that we do not have to work for our salvation. We do not have to work to please you. It's been, you have been uh, satisfied by the work of your son, Jesus. We rest in that satisfaction. We rest in that propitiation. We rest in all of that activity, both his life and death, Lord, mean everything to us. We stake our eternal life on it. So I pray that it is a powerful time because you are speaking to us through this word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Something I was reading this week, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In a contrast, I was uh, noticing there, chapter 2, this section in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11, He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Now listen to the terms that Peter used in one way. Paul uses them in another way. He says, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promises, promise having no hope, And without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both us, us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Completely different what Peter's been talking about. He says you are strangers and aliens, but see what the transformation that God has made for us and done for us in Christ, that we were strangers and aliens to Christ. We were strangers and aliens to the Lord. Now because of Christ, 
We now have changed our position. We are now drawn near to Christ. We are now drawn near to the Lord because of Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit working with us, he transforms our hearts and our minds to draw near to the Lord because of the redemption that he's given us to Christ. And now we now are no longer strangers and aliens to God, but now strangers and aliens to the world that we live in. Where before we were very comfortable in the world that we lived in, we were very, we were very happy cohabitating and being very much a part of this world. We reveled in the fact that we couldn't wait to find out what was making the world tick so that we could become a part of it. Now, we are strangers and aliens of doing that. We no longer desire to think about what the world thinks or what the, how the world ticks, even though... We do have to live within this, and we still need to be good stewards, and we still need to be mindful. We still need to be discerning. We still need to know how to be good citizens, all that stuff. But yet, God has transformed our position with him. And I thought that was quite, uh, quite interesting. And he says, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of God's household, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I read that because it has significance not only as my introduction, but also as what Peter's going to talk about today as well. Today we have three imperatives in this passage. Three commandments. It's separated in this way. He says, Beloved, which is really the end of a section. We started this section in chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Beloved. Now he ends with this section. He goes in, in verse 11, chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And now he goes on and tells us how to do that, how to live, how to suffer. And then he tells us today, beloved, he calls us that again. He calls this ch these churches in Turkey, in Asia Minor, beloved. He has a pastoral heart for these people. And then he's, he, he's very concerned about this suffering. Now, you can, and as I say this before in a, in, a, in a kind of a joking way, but if I just gave, you know, messages over and over again and keep on talking about suffering, they would say, you know, Pastor Jim, enough about suffering. You know, isn't there something else in the Bible but suffering? Just like the woman, and I may have told you this, I apologize for repeat, repeating it, but, you know, we, you know, Pastor, you've talked enough about sin. Every week you're talking about sin. And I was preaching through the book of Romans, and I said, when I, you get to heaven, talk to Paul about it. <laughs> he wrote it. I didn't. And this is what Peter, Peter is very, very concerned that this flock of people, he is this pastoral heart, for these people in, in this area that he is very concerned and he's concerned about, God is concerned about us because this word is for us as well. That he calls them beloved and he's very concerned. This is now several times, at once every chapter at least, he's talked about suffering and he seems to give us a little shade of difference or builds upon that or kind of expounds on it a little bit so that we find the grounding that we need and the foundation that we need because he says you in this world you're going to have tribulation. So he says, one thing that he wants us to, as an imperative, and this is what it is, it says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when you suffer. When you suffer a fiery trial, he says. 
when it comes upon you to test you. Now, in light of the, the, uh, the pop pat preachers that are out there, and, and the churches that pop up around us, that people flock to, will not hear, you not hear any words from Peter about suffering. Because suffering is taboo for the Christian. We're children of God. We're, 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 we can claim this inheritance from God now. We can take it now and enjoy it now. And they're enjoying it now, living in big homes and, and not accountable to anybody. And they can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want to. And they can draw people in. And they're not churches at all. Honestly, they're not churches. Because they're not preaching the gospel. They're places where people run to to feel good, to be hepped up by the music, to be, to, to be entertained, walk out of there. When you hear them on news and you hear people talking about their Easter services and their Christmas services, when they walk out, do they say, do they hear, well, I'm just so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that Jesus raised from the dead. I'm so thankful on this Resurrection Sunday. They say, no, wow, what a powerful worship experience. The music was wonderful. And Peter's not saying anything about that's that how that's important because really it's not important. What's important is the gospel. And but you're going to find people running to those places because everybody feels chilly and good. Everybody's cool, everybody's happy. You don't find suffering. You don't hear about sin. You hear about prosperity. You hear about health. You hear about potential. You hear about power. You hear what you're entitled to. And folks, we need to call the kettle black, and they're just telling lies. Which disturbs me to no end, is that we accept that, we just look at it, and we just say, well, we can't do anything about it. Well, I tell you, when I'm at work, I tell everybody, anybody talks to me about that, I, am def- I tell them point blank that these people are not telling the truth. And Peter wants to let these people know that this is what you are going to be doing in your life. Life of a Christian is a life of suffering. Completely contrary to what people are saying today. They don't want to run to a place of suffering. Life is tough as enough. This is hell on earth for me. I'm hoping that when I go to heaven, this is going to be, it's going to be better than this because this is hell. Well, boy, if you study what Jesus says about hell, if you study what the Bible, he talks more about hell than heaven. And I always say say this, if heaven is like no eye can see, no ear can hear, no mind can conceive what heaven is like, I can't imagine what hell is like. So Peter is so concerned about these people that he is saying, don't be surprised. But folks, aren't we still surprised? Aren't we still caught off guard when we suffer? We do. Now he's saying here, particularly, again we can use this as a, a, a kind of a theology about our life and thinking about when, when adversity comes, how are we to respond in our lives? But here is he talking about persecution for being a Christian or persecution for having certain beliefs. As we were talking this week, somebody was talking about, you know, they, that they're, they're upset about Christmas because Christmas is about materialism. And, we, you know, and I just went, well, change it. That was my word. I said, then don't go along with it. Change it. What is it? I said, okay, uh, Peanuts, you know, uh, Charlie Brown, what's, what's the meaning of Christmas? I said to him, Linus, can you tell me? And he looks at me and he starts smiling. I said, because that's what it's about. 
So if you don't like the way it's going, you don't like the materialism, then change it. He says, this, these, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by what's going to happen to you as Christians. We're going to be convicted about things. We have convictions about matters that come our way. I mean, if anybody asks you, why are you so assured? Aren't you rather arrogant to believe that you're going to heaven? Why are you so sure that you're going to heaven? And then you have an answer, as he says, be able to give a logical account for the hope that you have within you. Peter has, we've looked at that. And the account is, is that it's all based upon Jesus and what he's done for us. And that he died for our sins. So Peter says, don't be surprised, but you and I are still going to be surprised. That's why we need to preach about it. That's why we need to read it. That's why we need to talk about it. We need to have a community of faith to help us be reminded of the fact that stuff is going to happen in our life. And we're not going to be acceptable to the world if we stand up for the convictions of Christ. And notice he says here, don't be surprised, which is an imperative. He says, because you're aliens. You're a stranger to this world. You're an odd, peculiar person. So revel in that. Be happy about that. Rejoice in that. And a fiery trial. Now, a fiery trial, as, as it uh, says in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, though it is necessary, you have received, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, So Peter is writing it out from the beginning, and now he expounds on it and and parses it out for us. He says, don't be surprised, my beloved, that that suffering is going to come. Because, what do you think about when we talked about this, that you've done something wrong? That God is angry with you? That where is the love of God in this? When this stuff happens. This week I was listening to uh, Gordon Lightfoot. And the Edmund Fitzgerald song came up, and that, that was the lyrics in there. Where he, goes, he goes, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the minutes turn into hours? And when you're stuck in this tribulation, and when you're stuck in a situation, all of a sudden you notice not only us, but the world looks at it, well, if God's such a loving God, why this and why that? Because they have it all down pat who God is and what God's love is all about. They've studied it so much, they're so worried about it. Why did God, who loves this and loves you, why does he do this to you? And why does he allow this to happen? Doesn't he love little children? Doesn't he love women? Doesn't he love these people? Why does he allow this stuff to take place? And you know what? We can wonder sometimes when we face these trials. And when we find a fiery trial, a fiery trial is one to test us, to test our genuine. You know, it says that the dross may be consumed and how firm a foundation. It's a fiery trial when it comes on you to test you. It's a discerning fire. It's a fire to see what we're made of. What's going to come out of our hearts? What's going to come out of our mouth? What's going to come out of our churches when we find ourselves in a fiery trial? Are we going to be genuinely Christian or are we going to revert back to the default button? As though something was strange happening to you. But he says, rejoice. Verse 13. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. 
Now, let me read something. Let's go to a, a verse that has, can be problematic if we don't understand it. It's from Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He goes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Now some people can look at that and say, Well, there's some deficiency in the suffering of Christ. Well, he's not saying there's some deficiency. He's just saying that the work of Christ's suffering is going on still for his church. Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 9, excuse me. Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Paul ever say, did he ever see Jesus to ever say anything against Jesus? Did he ever hit Jesus? Did he ever slap Jesus? Did he ever do anything in Jesus' face? So that he knew he was talking about Jesus? And the answer is no. But you see in that, in that conversation that the Lord was having with, with Saul, who was Paul, he's saying, you are persecuting me. And when we all go through a trial, Christ is going through a trial. When, stri- when we are being afflicted, Christ is still being afflicted. It's an ongoing suffering that Christ has suffered for us. Our suffering is not atoning, but our, su- our suffering is for purification. It's for refining. It's for holiness. It's for testing. It's for the genuineness. Do you really believe in me? I mean, Peter must really have this all going through his head like we've talked about before when he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, no way, Jose, are you going to die like this? You're not going to suffer. You're, you're supposed to be the Messiah. I just said you were the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Why would I want you to go suffer and die? We need you to get us out of this mess. And so now Peter is so convinced about it. God's transformed Peter in such a way, he's so convinced that now he realizes that this is the truth that was so, he was so blinded to before. Now he's making completely, using over and over and over again, he's trying to tell us that he made that mistake. Don't you get confused by this, that Jesus came to suffer for you and me. And when you suffer, you, are con- you and I suffer, we're continuing that suffering for the church. And Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Because it's for you guys. But it's ultimately not my sufferings, it's Christ's sufferings. So we see that as long as you, he says, it's not only for you to, you know, to, to go on living, but it's also for you to be, be a partaker of the sufferings of Christ. Paul says it through and through. And that's what he's talking about. So we don't want to think in Colossians that Jesus' suffering has been short-sighted or that we've been short-changed somewhere and it's waiting for it to reach a point. It's saying that his atoning work has been done, but through the saints, through the church, through the persecution of the church, his suffering is still going on. So rejoice, he says, as they did. I mean, the mentality to think about this is unnatural, is it not? I've said this before. This is not a natural way to be thinking. We need the Holy Spirit to come and change us to be able to respond this way. It is unnatural to rejoice when someone turns the heat up in our life. Just unnatural. And he says here, what Peter's implying, that the more suffering you have, the more rejoicing that you do. Wow, I need the Lord to really work in my heart. To make me see this. 
to be like in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were brought before the council, and, they, and it just says in there, Luke just says, well, the apostles were brought in, and they were beaten, and they left rejoicing. Because they thought it was a wonderful thing to be suffering for Christ, to be beaten for Christ. You know, what were those guys smoking, you know? I mean, what was the matter with them? How do you think about this? These guys are coming out, being beaten for the Lord, and happy about being beaten? Why, is the Lord angry with me? Have I done something? Is there sin in my life? Is there something going on? I didn't, you know. I mean, we have people coming to church. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. I made a confession. And then when the test comes, they just fall apart. The soils, you know, when the heat and when the uh, life comes in upon it, it chokes it, it dries it up, and it dies. And Peter wants the church to know, and these saints to know, and the Lord wants us to know, that we need to be very well aware of the fact that suffering is not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing. As he says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And he said that before to us in chapter uh, 3. Does, we don't find that to be a blessing, but we need to be mindful. We need to change our lenses. We need to change our thinking about this being a blessed state. Now, not being, not because, as he says here, is... Uh, um, Verse 15, but let no one of, not one of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer because you deserve suffering, right? You deserve to be persecuted. You deserve to be judged if you are one of these people. That's, that's a no-brainer. He says you expect that to happen. But I, one thing is even in there that I, I thought was quite interesting, that we can understand a murderer and we can understand an evildoer and we can even understand a thief because that would lead to some sort of capital punishment. But a meddler. I thought that was quite interesting. Somebody who's prying into someone else's business. And this is the word here is a combination of two words, meaning the, the possessions that someone else owned and you being an overseer or an episcopos or a bishop over them. I mean, it talks about the next chapter being elders in chapter 5 he starts talking about that and those who are over you in the Lord and he uses this word episkopos which is the word for bishop here he is saying that make sure as Christians we aren't overseers in the lives of other people that we don't meddle in the lives of other people because he says mind your own business now it's not to say that we don't give an answer for the hope that lies within us but we make sure that we don't keep on sticking our nose in people's business when they don't want us to stick our nose in people's business. And that we deserve to get whacked and to be convicted and to be persecuted and to be reviled when we do that. Now again, don't take these statements as something that, well, what about and what about? Yeah, you know and I know that there's always instances where you know, we need to intervene. But when Christians going around and Peter's trying to tell these people, don't go to these pagans and just start, you know, going up to them saying, "You bunch of sinners." I mean, I know I did that when I was my first came to the Lord. I was so wowed that I went back and I probably burned bridges, you know, all the time. Went back to my Roman Catholic family and told them that they've been lied to all their lives. That was endearing family moments. took a long time for some of them to really not have a twisted face when they saw me, to be angry at me, because I was very immature in my faith. And so he is saying here, you know, 
don't don't be an evildoer. Don't be a murderer because, you know, what blessing is that to the Lord? And don't be a meddler. Don't be a prying in other people's business because you're asking for trouble. But, he says, if you should suffer as a Christian, words not used that much in the Bible, the word Christian, if you're suffering as a Christian, not all suffering, as he has said, is good. If you suffer as an evildoer, <clears throat> That's not a positive thing, though it may from a legal perspective a positive thing. But he's saying all suffering is not redeeming. If you're an idiot, you're an idiot. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But, he says, the next imperative, but let him glorify God. In that name. Now what's interesting, as we go back up to verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now you have to think about, when you look at the spirit of glory and the spirit of God in the Old Testament, the word may come to your mind, the Shekinah glory of God. The glory of the pillar of light and the the, the, the glory that filled the sanctuary, filled the tent, filled the tabernacle, filled Solomon's temple. It's the glory that left and departed in Ezekiel. In that vision that Ezekiel had, God left. And even though in Haggai they built it back again, and even though Herod had a temple, God never comes back to dwell again, never comes back and fills those again. Until who? Until you destroy this temple in three days, God will raise it up. Jesus is now that Shekinah glory. He is the very image of God, the very uh, representation of God, the very nature of God, as Colossians says to us. The exact representation of God, the glory of God. So what's important here is saying that that Shekinah glory that was off limits to everybody now is resting upon you and me because of being in Christ. And I think that's, that may be a slight thing that people don't get and remember, but that Shekinah glory that would kill people now rests on you and me because we are now the temple of the Lord. We are now the house of God. Now we have the church but he's also saying that to Jesus, Jesus is that temple. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. And he says he lives within us. And now don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now you're just not talking a slight mystical kind of, you know, Casper the, the ghost uh, feeling here, this energy inside of us. This is this, the glory, the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God is dwelling within us because of Christ. Now, this is what Peter's trying to tell these people. You know, this is good stuff, people. He says, this is, this, is your, this is your inheritance. This is who you are by being a privileged child of God. You don't deserve it, but here is who you are. So he's trying to tell them that he's trying to build them up by all these pieces of adding on, you know, this is who you are, and from one chapter to another chapter to another chapter, he keeps on repeating these things because he wants people to get it down pat. And, and, and as I said, the Christology of Christ. Uh, grows within Peter, he wants us to realize that who we are in Christ is so much more. So that when you find yourself in a fiery trial, 
Don't think and don't be surprised. Now, you need to examine yourself. But if it comes upon you, don't be surprised that you have because God is genuinely testing you. And then he moves on to verse 17. So we have God telling us not to be surprised. Peter's telling us through the Holy Spirit, telling them not to be surprised, not to be ashamed of what's going on in your life, but glorify God. He says, therefore, let let him glorify God as an imperative. And then we move on to verse 17, 18, 19. And he says to them, for it for, the reason why it is, if anyone suffers in verse 16 or the verse 12 through 16, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And the purpose is this for, here's the reason, for, because it is time for judgment to begin in the house of God. Now, some people translate a household, the ESV does, um, some people call it the family of God. To me and other people, it looks like he's talking about this, the house of God, the very church of God, the congregation of the church of God, because he's talking about, as we read in, in, in Ephesians, about Christ being the house of God and we now being the house of God. He's saying here that it is time to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us, what with those who are going to face the judgment, what's going to happen to them? Now, if you go to the book of Ezekiel, let's turn with me to, a, to, the, to the, the prophecy of Ezekiel, just to kind of understand where Peter probably is coming from. Notice what he says. It starts with the house of God. This is what he does before he leaves the premises. In chapter, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8, 9, and 10 is a vision that Ezekiel has. And notice what it says here. He says, um, verse verse, uh, 5, he goes, Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing to drive me from my sanctuary? But you, you will see even greater abominations. And then he goes on to the leadership. And he says in verse 11, And he's, therefore he stood before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house. And he says... Uh, each had a censer in their hand, and the smoke of the cloud of the incense was going up, which was worshiping. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what these elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures? They say, The Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So this is when they were going through this persecution, when they were looking at suffering, do you see what the people of God did? They said, God doesn't love us. So what did they do? They they were created to worship. And as the great theologian Bob Dylan said, you know, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And our hearts are meant to to worship. And if we don't worship the creator, we will worship the creature. 
and whatever creature creates. And so this is the house of Israel, the leaders worshiping with the smoke and the fragrance going up, the censers going up to heaven, and God looks upon them and says, look at them. What is their saying? The Lord doesn't care about us. That's why Peter's so concerned, saying, don't think that the Lord doesn't care about you, because he does. Don't be surprised when these trials come on you. Don't be surprised when stuff happens to you as in your life, but also being a Christian, because God is at work. God's, and it says, in, it'll say in verse 19, it is God's will for him to do this in your life. And then he goes on and he keeps on saying, do this whole thing in verse 18 of Ezekiel, therefore I will act in my wrath, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And he goes on and he says, uh, 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 verse, chapter 10, 9 and 10, the same plea. The Lord's forsaken us. The Lord doesn't see. He's nowhere to be found. Where does the love of God go? And so we may be tempted to think that, that God doesn't love us. And then in chapter 10, he takes the land train for the coast. God leaves the premises. Doesn't come back until Jesus. One more is uh, Matthew chapter, excuse me, Malachi. The the only Italian, right? The Malachi papers. (laughs) Malachi. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's who Jesus is. They're longing and waiting for Jesus to come. They're waiting for something that happened in the past, thinking that was the only way it was going to happen, and God had a better plan. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refining, f- refiner's file and full of fuller soap. He will sit at a refiner as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, meaning the priests, the people who worship. Because if we don't worship God the way that God wants us to worship him, what right do we have to say we call ourselves believers? Because God created us to worship. And if we don't worship God the way that he wants to, not only in 10 to 11.30, but throughout the entire week, we may be led to believe that God doesn't really care. God isn't that close to us. God hasn't drawn near to us. And we find them, we find these Levites, like we find them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings to the righteousness of the Lord, in the righteousness of the Lord. I mean, this is Malachi's great. Malachi says, you know, you're robbing me. He says, look at me. He goes, look at your, look at your, sanct- your sanctuary. He goes, look at how you worship me. You bring me defective le- uh, offerings. Try to, bring these to the, try to bring these to somebody else, he says. See if they'll accept them. You know, we give God the leftover. We don't give God the best. We give God the leftovers. And who's God? He's got to love us. He knows who we are. He just has to realize that he'll just accept us. He's a loving God. You know, pay your taxes with coupons. Will Governor Cuomo take them? 
You know, God's saying, you're feeding me these pukes. I don't want anything to do with them. He says, the best thing to you to do, Malachi says, is board up the place because you no longer cease to be the people of God. You no longer cease to be the house of worship. Just stop it. So he says, if, if it begins, if this kind of discernment, if this kind of purification is coming to the house of God, which is a good thing. See, we may look at this as saying, oh, Bob was so wonderful last night just saying, God's just working. God is just working. God is just working. And he's right. I was going to say, gee, Bob, you took my notes from tomorrow. It's exactly right. God is working. You're going to have a fiery trial. There's going to be persecution. Some people look like it ain't going on in their life. They look like God's blessing them. God's giving them prosperity. God's giving them nice children. God's giving them nice things. And then there's some of us, and some of you, and all of us, that God looks at, you know, look, some of you looking and saying, what a pathetic person. God must be, you know, Shortchanging it for some reason. They must not be very good believers. And the Bible doesn't say anything like that at all. God's the one. The Holy Spirit's the one who gives out those gifts. And for some reason, he calls every one of us to different levels of trials. And we can't pick and choose the ones that we want. This isn't a multiple choice. That's why you and I need to understand that for some of us, God's not going to bring this kind of suffering. Now, being an American, we don't suffer anything. Like I said before, like other nations who are beaten daily, thrown in jail. You can, you know, hear all the stories, which are true. But he says, if this type of judgment is coming upon you and me, and we should be glad because God's testing us and seeing who we are, and Peter's saying, I don't want you to think that God doesn't love you. In fact, he loves you immensely, which is counterintuitive in my mind. I need him to get the pieces like the Rubik's Cube, you know, you just kind of get those pieces right, they fit, because sometimes it just doesn't click in my head. No matter I tell you, and I've read it, and I know, and I have my theology right, when I'm in that trench and when that fire's coming, I say, Lord, the smell of burning hair is not fun. When you reach that fire, you will not be burned. When the waters come upon you in Isaiah 43, you will not drown. But boy, right? He says, if it begins with, the house, with us, with the house of God, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the, God, the gospel? And then he quotes from uh, Proverbs 1, 11, 30, 31. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. Now, he's not saying that, you know, that we're just almost there or he's telling us that we're just. I mean, Jesus has saved us completely. Okay. We need to be we need everybody to realize that he's just saying that, well, you know, you're almost there. Now, there's some of us, as he says, and Peter, uh, Paul writes to us, you know, some of our works are going to be tested and some of us are going to have smoking butts when we walk in because we're just going to make it in, so to speak, by our, you know, as our looking at, it's a humorous way of looking at 
boy, oh boy, you haven't done a lot with your faith. Christ has saved you, but you really haven't done a lot with the gifts that God has given you. That's what Peter, Paul is saying there in Corinthians. He's saying, whew, golly, you guys made it right in. You just made it in. It was, a, you know, kind of a sarcasm of saying, you know, we're, God's, we're supposed to be working because we are privileged, because we are blessed, so that we are to give evidence that we are redeemed. He says here, if it is right, if the scarcely are, if, if the righteous are, uh, are, it's difficult or hard for the, the redeemed to be saved. I mean, because it's not easy. I mean, Christ gave his life. He died a horrible death. This testing and this fiery trials aren't easy. He's saying, if this is happening to you, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Why, Lord, am I suffering so much? And these families or these people don't seem to ever suffer. Now, you may think that's sinful, but we must ask ourselves that question's in our hearts of hearts, wondering why some people just don't seem, it doesn't seem to happen. Some people find the dump truck of suffering. And he says it's according to God's will. So, if God, as he says here, he is a faithful creator. Notice this. He is a faithful creator. The word has to be, the adjective has to be there, that he is faithful. He is faithful to who he is. That he loves us with an immense love, regardless of what you think he's doing. Regardless of how he treats his children, he loves us with a love that no human being on earth can ever believe how much he loves us and yet you and i when we go through these trials and we find ourselves suffering we question the goodness of god remember i i know you always remember everything i tell you but this the message i gave when i first came here talking about the book of romans when he asked those five questions toward the romans eight twenty eight, and following to the end and he asked those those five questions and he says there who can separate us from the love of christ and he goes on, and he takes more time to explain that than anyone else. Because that is where, when we get to the point where we have that theodicy, you know, that question of judging the justice of God. Is God fair? Is that fair, God? And this is said, he took Peter saying, this is what's going to happen to you when you find yourself in these fiery trials. So don't forget that God is a faithful God. So entrust your souls... Or let him have your souls for safekeeping. Because there's nobody better. As Peter has written, God's guarded your inheritance. In fact, yes, in chapter 1 he says he's guarding you. And if God created everything around us, can't he take care of you and me? Can't he take care? Do we trust him with our lives? Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder. I know I question God, you just aren't getting it right. It isn't working out for me. It shouldn't be this difficult. I'm working my tail off. I'm doing this. I've worked hard in that church. Why did they treat me that way? I've been, you know, you can ask, have your own dilemmas. And we have to go back to that point where he says, if this is the case, therefore, therefore, let those who suffer, imperative, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. 
Now the psalmist, in closing, in Psalm 73, which is a favorite psalm, turn with me to Psalm 73, had this dilemma as well. It's a psalm of Asaph when he says, uh, Truly God, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains of death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out like through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore the people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And then they look at you, and they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked... Always at ease, there they increase in their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak this, if I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought and how to understand this, it seemed so wearisome to me, a task so wearisome. And then he says, then I went into the sanctuary of God And then I realized what their end is. Truly, you have set them on slippery places. You will make them fall in ruin. And then he goes on in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. What's so good and so genuine about these psalms is that the emotions are real. You're looking for emotions up, down, in between, turned upside down. Go to the psalms. The Psalms are real. God wants us to be real. We aren't disrespectful or irreverent to go to God when we cry and we, as a little child goes to you and say, Mom, Dad, this doesn't make any sense. What are you doing to me? God's not offended by that at all. He wants us to go with his, our emotions to him. He wants us to run to him. And what happens is that when we stay within the confines of the community of faith, when we go and hear messages from God's word, when we spend time with God's people, when we ask the Lord to guide us and protect us and to be in a community of faith where the gospel and, and, and all the accoutrements of the confessions and the creeds and, and the prayers and everything and the songs that we sing are all pointing to our thankfulness and the goodness of our Creator through His Son Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit He says, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who am I in heaven but you? I text this to my daughter this week. And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. Now that has to be our song. That has to be our prayer. That has to be our prayer when we feel like it or not. That has to be our prayer when you can't see in front of you. And that has to be our prayer for us in this church, for you as an individual in your lives, that when stuff just starts flying around you, you realize that God's in control. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what Peter's trying to say. Peter's trying to remind them of who God is. That's what I want you and me to be reminded of. Because we never know what's going to hit us at 12 o'clock. Or throughout the day or throughout the week. We don't know what's going to come. We don't know when we may speak to somebody and everything's cool. We don't even know in a church when everything's wonderful. We have a wonderful evening and then Satan's lurking out in the hallway. I used to give messages and never be more attacked than I was in the middle of the, in the hallway of a church. Is this what... You know, Satan is, is coy. He's sly. I mean, even in, in the book of Zechariah, he was in the temple. He was accusing the high priest of being unworthy. And God says, get out of here. Who do you think you're talking to? I've redeemed that guy. So we need to be careful. And Peter's going to be talking about Satan in, in, a, in a few weeks. But I just wanted to bring that to your attention that this is what Peter's trying to do. You may find it monotonous and you wish Pastor Jim would talk about something else, but I hope you see the relevance of going through this because this builds and builds and builds because we need it and need it and need it. Let's pray together. As we sing songs, Lord, as we sing praises, as we sing hymns, as we read your word, Father, we, we, we pray that you'll bathe us with your presence. Bathe us with your love. Bathe us with your word. Father, I have hidden your word in my heart so I would not sin against you. And that means that if we sin against you, God, we would sin against others as well, even more frequently. And so, Father, I, I pray that by your spirit today, we would be mindful of these words. And, and we pray to the Holy Spirit that when we forget these things, will you remind us of them? That's a promise we've been given in the Word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we build our understanding of our theology of suffering, that, Lord, we would have a very mature and a very clear mind when it comes to suffering. Not only suffering in everyday life, but suffering because of being Christians. Lord, this is how we carry the cross. This is where Jesus talks about you, Jesus telling us about bearing our cross. We desire to bear that cross, Lord, in everything. We work out that salvation with fear and trembling. We want, us, we want you to help us to carry that cross in every aspect of our life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.